Years ago, I heard a pastor make a statement that was um, simple, very simple, yet incredibly profound. He said, it's never too late to start doing the right thing. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. You know, that's a statement that has stuck with me ever since the day I heard it. And it's a statement that I've used in countless counseling situations when sitting across the table from people who have ruined their lives by poor choices, whether it's because of alcohol or drug addiction, problems with sexual sin or uncontrolled anger. Often one of the first things I say in those kind of situations is, yes, you've made some poor choices. And yes, you've experienced some devastating consequences as a result of those choices. But I've got good news for you. In Psalm 86.5, it says, God is ready to forgive and he's eager to restore all who call out to him with a heart of repentance. Therefore, it's never too late to start doing the right thing. Do you believe that's true? It is because the word of God says so. You see, when people are headed down the wrong path, Satan likes to get them to believe a certain lie. And it goes something like this. If you've already blown it, there's no use turning back. If you've already jumped into the pool of sin, then you might as well keep swimming in it. After all, look at all that you've done. Look at how far you are in the deep end of sin. There's not a chance in the world that God would ever take you back. Listen, that's one of the lies that Satan loves to use to keep people from turning to the Lord. But the word of God tells us otherwise. The scriptures repeatedly tell us that while we're still alive and have breath in our lungs, listen, it's never too late to start following after God. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. To see a real-life example of this truth, open your Bibles to the Old Testament and meet me at 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and when you get there, you might have to blow the dust off the page because not many of us spend many quiet times in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, as you're turning there, let me give you a little background to the passage which we're about to consider this morning. The events in First and Second Chronicles took place during the time of the kings. And if you recall, the nation of Israel, it started out as a, as a unified nation. When God uh, called his people, he called them as a unified nation. But after the period of Solomon's reign, the kingdom divided into two parts. You had the kingdom of Israel in the north, and you had the kingdom of Judah in the south. And the way that helped you sort of keep them separate in your minds is to remember that Israel had no righteous kings in the north, zero, which is why God chose to, to wipe them off the scene in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, on the other hand, had a few righteous kings, which is why they lasted a little while longer than their neighbor to the north. And one of those righteous kings who ruled in the south in the kingdom of Judah was a man by the name of Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was one of the godliest men to sit on the throne since the time of David. He was a man of character. He ruled with integrity. And he was the father of the individual with whom we'll be considering right here in this text. Look at chapter 33, if you would, for me, with me. And look at verse 1. 
It says this, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Most commentators agree that Manasseh didn't begin his period of rulership on his own. He and his godly father shared a co-regency for a period of about 10 years, which gave King Hezekiah, Manasseh's father, the opportunity to prepare and groom his son for leadership for the many years that would lie ahead. Can you think of a more ideal situation for a young man than that? Than to learn side by side with his father, who at this time was the very best. Listen, Manasseh's situation was far from what men like Josiah experienced when he became king. In the very next chapter, we won't look there, but in the very next chapter, chapter 34, we're told that Josiah became king at age eight because his father Ammon died a premature death as a result of his wicked lifestyle. Listen, Josiah was forced to the throne at a very young age and he had no model to learn from. He had no example to follow. But you know, that wasn't the case for young King Manasseh. Listen, he had the opportunity of a lifetime to learn from his godly father how to rule and reign until he was 22 years old. Manasseh was that age when his father died and he was that age when he became the sole ruler of the kingdom of Judah. How did he do? How did he handle being a king on his own. Well, look at verse 2 with me, if you would. It says, But he, Manasseh, did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images, and he worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars. And the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Verse 7, he even set a carved image. The idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinance by the hand of Moses." And so Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. And therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains and the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. What a tragic, tragic scene. Listen, these verses don't merely tell us that Manasseh went a different direction than his father, but that he became the most evil and wicked king that the nation of Judah had ever known. He was vile. He was immoral, Manasseh. And he engaged in more evil deeds than the, than the pagan nations that surrounded him. You know, after reading these verses, it's hard to believe that a man like this could ever turn it around, right? Right? 
I mean, if we knew of a man like this today, I'm sure most of us would look at him and think, he's a lost cause. He's beyond any hope. After all, just look, just look and think about what his life was like up to this point in the story. In looking at verses 1 through 10, we find at least five qualities that make it seem that Manasseh was beyond any hope. The first is this. Number one, he squandered a godly heritage. He squandered a godly heritage. As I mentioned earlier, Manasseh's father was the great king Hezekiah. He was one of the godliest men to ever rule in the nation of Judah. To catch a glimpse of this, turn back with, if you would, uh, with me to chapter 29. For, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 29. We're in the same book. Just back a few chapters. Chapter 29. And let's just get a little bit of a of a, a glimpse, a little bit of insight in what kind of man and what kind of king Hezekiah was. Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1. It says, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And notice what it says in verse 2. It says, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Listen, that's a great summary of Hezekiah's kingship. He was a godly man. In contrast to his own father, if you read about Ahaz in the previous chapter, ungodly man, unrighteous man, a guy you don't want to follow in his example, Hezekiah was a godly man who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And you know, we see evidence of that in the very next verse. Look at verse 3 where it says, In the first year of his reign, very first year as king, in the first month, very first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from this holy place. Again, notice this occurred in just the first year of Hezekiah's reign. In his very first year as king, Hezekiah started turning the nation of Judah back to God. It's an amazing story. Then skip down to verse 15. We continue to see this picture. In verse 15, it says, And they gathered their brethren, and they sanctified themselves, and they went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Verse 16, And the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and brought out all the debris that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out, and they carried it to the brook Kidron. Again, this is incredible what took place in this first year. You see, when Hezekiah's father Ahaz reigned, temple worship was totally abandoned. And the temple became nothing more than a garbage dump full of debris. But you know, when Hezekiah rose to power, things changed. And they changed quickly. Because he made a concerted effort to clean up the temple and restore true worship back in the land. What a king, right? What a guy. Then skip over to chapter 30, if you would. Again, just getting a glimpse of what kind of king Hezekiah was. Chapter 30 in verse 1. <clears throat> Prior to Hezekiah's kingship, it's, I think it's important to note that the people of Israel hadn't celebrated the Passover in over 16 years. Imagine that. God had instructed them, hey, keep the, look at what I did in your past. 
back in Egypt when I delivered your people and uh, delivered Israel out of the Egyptians' hands and I brought you to the land of Canaan, made you my own people, my own nation, and they just totally abandoned, totally forgot what God had done in Israel's past. But notice what the text says beginning in verse 1. It says, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, to the house of the Lord, I'm sorry, to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel for the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem and the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. Listen, this was a huge deal. The Passover celebration had been overlooked for years, listen, until Hezekiah arrived on the scene. And notice what the text tells us was the response of the people when their lives were back on track with the Lord. In verse 25, it says, the whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. Also the priests and the Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. And so there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in all of Jerusalem. Listen, Hezekiah's turning the nation back to God resulted in what? Great joy. Great joy. And such joy that hadn't been experienced for over 200 years since the reign of King Solomon. What an incredible turnaround. I mean, talk about taking this ship that was going the wrong direction and turning it around and going hard after God. That's what Hezekiah had done. And skip over to chapter 31, if you would. Chapter 31 and verse 20, toward the end of that chapter, just again, getting a glimpse. Hey, what kind of man was Hezekiah? What kind of king was Hezekiah? Verse 20, it says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, listen, he did it with all his heart. And therefore he prospered. Listen, that's the kind of man Hezekiah was. And that's the kind of father Manasseh was exposed to while growing up. You know, when reading about Hezekiah, it's obvious that Manasseh grew up in a home with a godly father, and he was given a godly heritage. But what did he do with it? How did he respond to it? Well, sadly, he did what many young people do and how many young people respond, and that is squander the priceless investment he was given. Turn over to chapter 33 again, and we'll see this. In verse 3, it says, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, remember him? Godly man, righteous man, godly father. For he re rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images. And he worshiped all the host of heaven and he served them. You know, it's not like Manasseh got off track for a little while and just sort of backslid for a season of life. No, he pushed hard 
against the godly example set by his father, and he ran full speed toward a life of sin. You ever witnessed that before? I have. Almost too many times to count. In fact, one of the greatest heartbreaks in my ministry over the last 12 years here at Grace and working with youth ministry is that to think back to all the teens who grew up in godly homes and were taught the scriptures from a young age, squander the investment they were given and plunge themselves into a life of sin. Listen, if it happened only one time, if it only happened a few times over the years, it wouldn't be as heartbreaking it would still be heartbreaking, maybe not as much, but I've seen it happen with almost every class that has graduated from our ministry. If you're a young person, you're here this morning, hey, don't let that happen to you. If you've been given the privilege of being raised in a Christian home, in a godly home with a mom or a dad or both who have taught you the scriptures from a young age, learn to treasure what the Lord has given you. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Tragically, that's exactly what Manasseh did, which leads us to think he was beyond any shadow of hope. There's no hope for a guy like that. I mean, not only did he push hard, he, or not only walk away, he pushed hard, very hard against the ex- godly example established by his father. Number two, he exchanged true worship for a lie. He exchanged true worship for a lie. Look at verse four. It says, he also built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. You know, know, when Manasseh turned his back on God, he began to worship other things. Verse four tells us he built altars in the house of the Lord. By the way, these weren't altars to commemorate the one true God. 2 Kings 21 tells us these were altars devoted to Asherah, who was a false goddess worshipped by the Canaanites. We know from history that the worship of Asherah involved prostitution, sexual perversions, really of the worst kind. So just think about it for a moment. The very temple in which God had established his great and holy name, Manasseh reduced to a place of immorality of the worst and grossest kind. What a horrible scene. Horrible. In addition, verse 5 tells us he built altars for all the stars in the heavens. In other words, he looked for truth and the answers for life in creation rather than looking for truth and the answers for life in the creator. Sound familiar? You know, it's amazing what people will say when they turn their backs on God. The assumption is that they've totally abandoned a life of worship. But in reality, all they've done is exchange the worship for one thing for the worship of another. G.K. Chesterton was right when he said this, quote, when we cease to worship God, we don't worship nothing, we worship anything. We don't, did you hear that? When we cease to worship God, we don't worship nothing, we worship anything. In other words, when people refuse to worship God, that void isn't filled with nothing. It's filled with something of far less value and far less significance than the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's exactly what occurred in Manasseh's life. He exchanged the truth for a lie. He exchanged the worship of the one true God for a bunch of idols, which is another reason we would naturally assume he was a lost cause and beyond any shadow of hope. So he squandered a godly heritage, this Manasseh. 
He exchanged true worship for a lie. But that's not all. Number three, he committed horrific acts of sin. He committed horrific acts of sin. Look at verse six. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire. In the valley of the son of Hinnom, he practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much, much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name there forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. You know, as you read these verses, it's obvious Manasseh didn't merely dip his toe into the pool of sin. He dove straight into it, didn't he? As one commentator noted, quote, while all unbelievers are the servants of sin, not all are bold sinners. Outwardly, many are decent, law-abiding people. They have a sense of propriety and shame. They make sure that their sin remains within socially acceptable limits or behind closed doors. But Manasseh's was of a different kind. His corruption exceeded community standards, and he had no sense of shame. His motto was, if you've got it, flaunt it. It's as, if he, it's as if he was trying to be outrageous, to see if he could shock people with the extent of his wickedness. He not only sinned against the light of his godly upbringing, but he also sinned flagrantly and with great boldness, end quote. You know, it's a fairly accurate assessment of Manasseh's kingship up to this point in the story. In fact, look back at verse 6, if you would. It says the very first thing we're told here in verse 6 is Manasseh caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Listen, that's a reference to child sacrifice. Back in the Old Testament times, there was a group of people called the Ammonites who worshiped the false god of Moloch. And part of their sinful worship practices involved the sacrifice of little children. Can you imagine that? To think that somehow if you were to offer your kid as a sacrifice and to kill your own child, boy or girl, before the Lord, that that would somehow be pleasing to the God of heaven. What a horrifying act to commit. Horrifying. Of course, God made it clear in the Old Testament that that kind of worship was forbidden. In Leviticus 18.21, God said, And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the Lord your God. Listen, it's obvious that God despised that form of worship. But you know, it's not like Manasseh was coerced to do it. It's not like he was pushed to do it. No, he embraced that form of worship wholeheartedly. And not only that, verse 6 goes on to say he practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritists. In other words, he was looking for supernatural truth outside of God in every way possible. It's no wonder the end of the verse says he did great evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked the Lord to anger. You see, Manasseh wasn't just your average unbeliever. He was about as evil as evil gets. But you know, that's not all. Listen, not only did he himself engage in evil practices, but he encouraged others to do the same. 
And that brings us to point number four on your outline. He influenced others to do evil. Manasseh influenced others to do evil. Look at verse 9. It says, So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Listen, if Manasseh had pursued a life of wickedness on his own, that would have been bad enough. That would have been horrible enough. But he didn't just stop at doing it himself. He influenced the whole nation of Judah to do the exact same thing. And isn't that how sin tends to work? Sin, it it loves company, doesn't it? It usually likes a crowd and for others to join in. I mean, think about all the, the gross immorality that takes place in our world today. It's true that quite a bit happens in the privacy of people's homes behind closed doors, but much of it happens around people, whether it's at a party or a club, or a sports bar at someone else's house. Listen, sin likes to draw a crowd because it likes to be affirmed in what it's doing. It likes to hear other people say, hey, you're really living it up. Or hey, what's, what's better in life than this? Or hey, this is, listen, this is what the good life is all about. Sin likes to have the assurance that what it's doing is just perfectly fine. Which is why it's no surprise Manasseh seduced others to engage in the same evil practices with which he was involved. So listen, Manasseh not only gave his own life over to sin, not only plunged his own life into a life of evil, but he influenced others to do the same. And that is another reason it would appear he was beyond any shadow of hope. There's no hope for a guy like that. There's no way a guy that this deep in sin could ever turn it around and start walking with the Lord. But you know, there's, that's not it. It gets worse. Number five, he rejected the word of the Lord. He rejected the word of the Lord. Look at verse 10. It says, and the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not listen. They would not listen. You know, as I read this verse, I couldn't help but think, Isn't the Lord's patience so amazing? I mean, just think about all the evil Manasseh had done up to this point in his life. Listen, he didn't just dabble with sin. He didn't just dip his foot into sin. He gave his entire life to it. And yet in spite of that, the Lord graciously reached out to him and appealed to him to change his ways. What an expression of kindness. It reminds me of 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says, listen, God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, God is by nature a what? A savior. It's in the heart of God to want all men to be saved. And we see that same truth echoed in 1 Timothy 2, 4, where Paul said this, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Listen, that's the heartbeat of God. He wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth of his word. You know, some people have this foolish notion that everyone in the world is desperate to be saved, just wanting to be saved, wanting to be with the Lord. And and sort of God's sort of with a cold heart. He's sort of standing out in the distance, standing back saying, hey, you, I'll let in. You, maybe not. You, you guys come in. You, the rest of you, I won't allow in. It's sort of as if God is sort of this cold-hearted, mean ogre who's just sort of lets some people in and rejects the rest. But you know, that's ridiculous. 
The fact is, people really aren't that anxious to abandon their life of sin and to follow after God. And that's why it's an act of grace anytime anyone surrenders his or her life to the Lord, right? As the saying goes, the Lord is more eager to forgive than we are in seeking his forgiveness. The Lord is more eager to save than we are in seeking his salvation. And you know, here, right here in 2 Chronicles 33, we see an example of that very thing play out. Manasseh was running hard in the most opposite direction any man can go with his life. But the Lord graciously stepped in to warn him and appealed to him to change his ways. And how did Manasseh respond to the Lord's kindness, to the Lord's graciousness? Well, the end of verse 10 tells us he and the people of Judah refused to listen. They had better things to do in life than to pay attention to God. And why not? They turned their backs on God. They gave themselves over to sin. And there didn't appear to be any negative consequences for what they were doing. At least that's what they thought. But you know, they forgot an important principle when it comes to the decisions in life. And it goes something like this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. In other words, when it comes to the issue of sin, a sowing and reaping principle applies. Sin, it really does attract consequences. And those consequences may not be immediate. It's kind of like a farmer. Paul used that illustration in Galatians 6. It's kind of like a farmer who goes out and sows some seed in the field. It's not like the crop springs up the very next day. It usually takes some time. It usually doesn't happen right away. But mark this in your minds. The day will eventually come when you will pay the price for your sin. And you know, that day was right around the corner for King Manasseh. Because look at verse 11. It says, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. It's obvious this was a form of God's judgment here in verse 11 because of the statement at the beginning of the verse where it says it was the Lord who brought this about. Listen, God is the one who orchestrated this whole scenario. Manasseh refused to listen to the word of God, so God stepped in and he chose to humble him. And you know, this would have been a very humiliating situation for any king to be a part of, for any king to experience. Think about it. Manasseh was the most powerful man in the nation of Judah. He was used to being served. He was used to being waited upon. He was used to living a life of luxury and comfort. But here we see he was defeated by the Assyrian army and he was carried away in chains. The text tells us he was taken away from his homeland and he was carried away by hooks. What is that referring to? Well, according to historical accounts, the Assyrians had a reputation of attaching hooks to the noses of their captives and carrying them away by a leash. What a humbling experience that would be, right? What a painful experience that would be. It reminds me, this situation reminds me of what it says in Proverbs thirteen fifteen, where it says, for the way of the transgressor is what? Hard. For the way of the transgressor is hard. Listen, sin may be fun. Sin may be pleasurable in the moment, but it's an extremely hard and painful path in the long run. 
Of course, our culture doesn't always advertise it that way. Hollywood doesn't usually show it. If there's some sort of immoral movie, it's not like at the end of the movie they say, hey, here's the consequences if you choose to live this kind of life or engage in this kind of evil or wicked practices. Facebook doesn't usually show it. I know a lot of people whose lives are a complete wreck, but you would never know it looking at Facebook. Their lives look so appealing. They're out partying. They're out getting drunk. They're out living the life. But you know what? If you start peeling back the layers, what you find is that their lives aren't nearly as pleasant as they seem. Their lives really aren't that enjoyable or as enjoyable as they make it look to be. Listen, if you choose to go down a path of sin, it's only a matter of time before the consequences start catching up to you. And it's only a matter of time where you'll end up paying the price for your sin. You know, that's what Manasseh discovered right here. He turned his back on God and his payday finally arrived. But notice what happened next. Look at verse 12. It says, now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to him and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. The Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed Ophel and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Wow. Wow. What a turnaround, right? Did you ever imagine, did you ever imagine that that's how the story would end? Listen, Manasseh was about as far off the deep end as any man could ever be. But the Lord redeemed his life, and transformed him from the inside out. What a story. One of my favorites, really, in all the Old Testament, the story of the conversion of Manasseh. You know, there are many lessons we can learn from this particular account, from the life of Manasseh. But for the remainder of our time, I want us to consider just three. Just three. The first is this. Number one, what do we learn from this story? Number one, the consequences of sin are extremely painful. The consequences of sin are extremely painful. Listen, I don't think the Lord would want us to somehow miss that in the story. Yes, the Lord is gracious. Yes, he is quick to forgive. But there are still painful consequences, painful ones for those who willfully reject God's counsel and go on and pursue a life of sin. I mean, just think about some of the consequences that resulted from Manasseh turning his back on God. It wasn't just that he was carried off to Assyria as a captive, as bad as that was, as bad as that was. Verse 17 indicates, as we just read a moment ago, that even though Manasseh got his life right with the Lord, the people of Judah weren't as quick to do the same. In other words, they, start, they sacrificed at the high places. They had sacrificed to the Lord, but still at the high places, the pagan places of worship. In other words, the damage caused by Manasseh's earlier example wasn't easily reversed. It's not like it just turned around the whole kingdom. 
In addition, 2 Kings 24, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 24, 3 tells us one of the major reasons God would later use Babylon to destroy the nation of Judah was because of the sins of Manasseh. You want to know what's interesting about that? Is that that event didn't take place. When Babylon destroyed Judah, that event didn't take place until about 40 years after Manasseh's death. Yet the consequences of his sin were still being felt to that very day. And so you can probably sense the tension in my heart as I preach on the life of Manasseh. Because on the one hand, I would never want to minimize the Lord's grace and and his forgiveness in this situation. It was immense. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But on the other hand, I would never want to minimize, never, never want to minimize the impact our sin can have in our own lives and in the lives of others. And so principle number one, what do we learn from Manasseh's life? That the consequences of sin are extremely painful. Sin is extremely deceptive. And the deception of sin is this, is that it promises pleasure and it hides the consequences. That's what we learn from Manasseh's life. Number two, the key to change involves brokenness and humility. The key to change involves brokenness and humility. We see that in verses 12 and 13. Listen, the turning point in Manasseh's life had nothing to do with deciding to become more religious. It had nothing to do with deciding to live a moral life or start becoming a better person. Instead, the turning point in his life is when he humbled himself before the Lord and he cried out to God in prayer. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You know, that's exactly what took place in Manasseh's life. At the moment he sought the Lord and and chose to forsake his sin was the very moment his life was changed. And he experienced the mercy of God's forgiveness. You know what a change it was? What a transformation it was. And it all started when Manasseh broke. And he chose to humble his heart before the Lord. Then a third application is this. Number three, that the Lord can redeem the most unlikely people. The Lord can redeem the most unlikely people. Does that encourage your heart? It does mine. I know of many people whose hearts ache on a daily basis because they have loved ones who are running full speed toward a life of sin. You know, when you're in that position, it's easy to assume there's not a chance in the world people like that will ever be saved, that they'll ever be redeemed. But you know, the story of Manasseh reminds us otherwise, doesn't it? It reminds us that though some may be beyond the shadow of people's hope, They're never beyond the shadow of God's grace. And so keep praying. Keep praying for people like that in your life. After all, this may be just one chapter in that person's life. You never know what the Lord will do in the next one. You never know what the Lord might do in the next season of that person's life. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, you are a gracious God, very gracious. And we're reminded of that this morning as we studied the life of Manasseh. What a, what a powerful account 
of your redeeming the life of a man who seemed anything but redeemable. What a powerful account of you saving the life of an individual who seemed beyond any shadow of hope. And Father, as we've studied this moving account this morning, we ask that you would use, use the principles that we've learned to make a difference in our own lives. Whether it's in a way to draw the heart of an individual who is yet to surrender his or her life to you, or maybe to encourage our hearts to keep praying for those who seem unlikely, just like Manasseh, very unlikely to ever turn to you. Lord, would you stir our hearts and would you grip us with the lessons that you want us to walk away with? For our sakes, yes, but for your name and for your glory, we pray these things together. In Jesus' name, amen.